Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Proverbs chapter 16. Uh, so we are beginning a short summer series today. We're taking a break from our study of the Gospel of John. We will return to that in the fall or in September. But throughout the summer months, we're, we're going to be spending our time in what I hope will be a really practical series for you. Uh, those of you who've been around Crossridge for a while will know that just a couple of summers ago, we actually preached through Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 expositionally. We spent the summer doing that. This series will be a little bit different than that. It'll be a little bit more thematic, exploring some of the topics that, that the book of Proverbs has to teach us uh, in regards to wisdom. Uh, our series is called Wisdom and... And the book of Proverbs, as I said, has much wisdom to impart to us in lots of different areas of life. And some of the topics that we will explore throughout the summer months are wisdom and wealth. What does God teach us about the way we handle funny, uh, money? Wisdom and work, wisdom and words, wisdom and relationships, wisdom and rewards or blessing, wisdom and foolishness. There's lots to learn about wisdom from this book. But this morning, we're going to begin with wisdom and planning, focus mostly on what we discover here in Proverbs chapter 16. Now, before we actually read this passage, I, I want to share with you my favorite piece of wisdom from outside of the Bible. And my favorite piece of wisdom or nugget of wisdom that comes from outside of the Bible actually comes from Mike Tyson, who said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right? That's a great bit of wisdom about planning. And Mike Tyson should know. He won his first 19 professional fights by knockout, 12 of them in the first round. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world from 1987 until 1990. But on February 11th, 1990, he was knocked out by Buster Douglas in a stunning upset. It is considered to be probably the greatest upset in the history of boxing, maybe the greatest upset in the history of all sports. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Now, maybe you haven't experienced it in exactly those terms or or expressed it quite like that, but I think every one of us knows what it is like to make a plan and then to see the whole thing fall apart. And sometimes we experience it with small plans. I mean, you know, you make plans to go out for dinner with your friends and those plans fall through. Or you make a plan to go on a vacation. Maybe it's even a dream vacation and those plans fall through. Lots of us experienced that in the last couple of years. And sometimes we experience that with much bigger plans. I mean, you look at where you are in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s or wherever you might be, and you say, well, you know what? My life didn't actually go according to my plan or my plans. This is not what I planned. My financial situation didn't go according to plan. Marriage didn't go according to plan. My kids didn't go according to plan. Retirement didn't go according to plan. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. 
you don't have to live very long to have experience with that. So I want you to listen now as I read Proverbs chapter 16. I'm going to read the first five verses and then also going to read verses 9, 25, and 33 because they're all related to this idea of planning. It says this, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Then verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Well, these verses have a lot to teach us about wisdom and planning, how we should plan, what we should avoid in our planning. Now, maybe when you hear this idea or this title, wisdom and planning, you think, well, you know, maybe this will be somewhat practical or helpful, but it's, it's really not very deep. Wisdom and planning, I mean I, 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 I mean, I guess I should pay attention, but I can get advice about planning from lots of different sources. I mean, you can get lots of help with short-term and long-term planning from your local bookstore. And what I want to help you with this morning is just to help you understand that the approach we take to planning is actually deeply theological. It is a reflection of our worldview. And I started this series here for a reason. I entitled this message Wisdom and Planning, but I could have easily titled it Wisdom and Sovereignty. Because in reality, what lies at the heart of the book of Proverbs, or what lies at the heart of what the book of Proverbs has to teach us about planning is the fact that God is sovereign over all things, including the present and the future, and we have to factor that in to our planning. Well, since this is the first message in this series, it's worth looking at what is rightly called the foundational verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, if you've read through the book of Proverbs, you know that that line is repeated a couple of times uh, in different ways throughout the book of Proverbs. What it's really telling us is that since this world was created by God and functions according to the principles He has set in place, you need to know Him in order to obtain wisdom. And that's true in all areas of life. All of the wisdom ends, and it's certainly true when it comes to wisdom and planning. If you don't understand that God is sovereign over all that happens in this world and that all of your plans are ultimately subject to His will, you will lead a frustrated existence. So with that said, I want to highlight five truths related to wisdom and planning or wisdom and sovereignty. And the first thing we should understand is that we might have the first word, but God always has the last word. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man... But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man. I mean, this is what we do. We make plans. Everyone has a plan. 
Now, we should plan. The old adage that says those who fail to plan, plan to fail, has a lot of truth in it. It's good to plan, but things don't always go according to our plans. The plans of mice and men often go awry, as the poet Robert Burns put it. And I'll just say, during my final semester of college, I I took a class where one of the assignments was to develop a five-year plan. It was sort of, you know, you're graduating from college, what is your five-year plan going forward? It was actually a really good exercise. Rather than just setting some vague goals, you know, I want to be successful, you had to sort of to plan out or map out how you were going to get there, right? Chart this out. Your five-year plan was supposed to include, you know, your educational pursuits, your vocational pursuits, and a financial plan. And my five-year plan, my short-term plan was to graduate from college, to get a summer job, make enough money so I could go to seminary in the States, and then get a job in ministry. That was sort of the five-year plan that I set out at the end of that semester. But things didn't go quite according to plan. I mean, I... It took a while to find a good-paying summer job, or at least a summer job, which meant I didn't have the money to move to the States to go to seminary. But it was also during that summer that I began a relationship with Ilona. And so when the fall rolled around, I didn't really feel like going to the States anyway. I enrolled in a couple of part-time classes at Regent College. And before I knew it, my plans had changed. That five-year plan basically just kind of changed and morphed quite a bit. And what verse 1 specifically says is that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, I think there's two different ways we can read that. We could read that negatively. Someone paraphrased it as man proposes, God opposes. And sometimes that is true. I mean, there are times where, you know, we make our plans and the Lord just shuts that whole thing down and, and we're not able to proceed. But I'm not sure that's the best way to read Proverbs 16.1 or that's always the case with our plans. And I think you can see that especially when you compare verse 1 with verse 9. Verse 9 says, The heart of of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You plan your way and God sometimes just establishes that for you. So if the truth of Proverbs 16.1 is that God is sovereign over all things, then how should we approach planning as Christians. And I think there are two errors we can make when it comes to the interplay between God's sovereignty and our planning. The first error is arrogance. We just go ahead and make our plans as if we are in complete control, and we often do this. And this is what James addresses in the New Testament when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, we all know that verse. I mean, we've probably heard that verse before. We know that what we should say is, yes, I'm going to do this if the Lord wills. We should kind of tack that on at the end. 
But often that's not what we do in practice. I mean, this isn't how we live in practice. And then we're surprised when things don't go according to our plans. James has it right when he says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, our very existence is completely dependent on the grace of God. We might wake up tomorrow. We might not. So one error we make is to ignore or neglect God's sovereignty altogether in the midst of our planning. This is just my plan for my life. I mean, it's my life after all. But the second error we can make is a kind of fatalism or resignation. I mean, if God is in control of all things, why should I bother planning or trying at all? The book of Ecclesiastes addresses that very thing when it says this. Chapter 11, it says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And then it says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now, the beginning of that passage is a little bit confusing, at least the first time you read it. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters and give a portion to seven or a portion to eight? What is all that about? Well, the idea seems to be connected to international trade. Casting your bread upon the waters is probably a reference to sending out your grain in seven or eight uh, different directions or seven or eight different ships Because you don't know which one is going to make it to its destination. You don't know which one is going to come back. And since you don't know, you might as well venture out in lots of different directions. That's actually the thrust of the entire passage. Don't stand around trying to figure out which way the wind is going to blow. Don't rely just on sowing your seed in the morning. Do something at evening as well. In contemporary terms, we might say start a side hustle. The point is that our lack of knowledge about the future, our lack of control over present events shouldn't lead us to do nothing. It should lead us to prepare for the unexpected. We ought to know that we make plans and plans have to change. What happens if I do get punched in the face? That's what the verses are telling us. So we might have the first word. God always has the last word. Second thing we learn from this passage about wisdom and planning is that we might be blind to our true motives, but the Lord is not. So look again at verse 2. It says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Right? So in our own minds, I mean, the reason I'm doing this is totally pure. I mean, this is my motivation for doing it. But God actually knows us. He weighs our spirit. And the book of Proverbs is filled with reminders about the fact that we are actually not the best judges of ourselves. And especially the best judges of our own motives. 
So just listen to a sampling of what the book of Proverbs has to say about those who are confident in their own judgment of themselves. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And here in our own chapter, in 1625, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And what those Proverbs teach us together is that it is possible to be right and righteous in our own eyes, but be completely wrong. Making ourselves our own moral arbiter is a foolish thing to do. And one of the reasons it's a foolish thing to do is because we constantly deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves about our own motivation for doing things. Sometimes we think we know the reason for doing what we're doing or planning what we're planning. We think our motives are altruistic. But if we actually probed a little bit deeper, we might find that we're actually motivated by a desire for recognition. Or maybe it's one-upmanship. Or maybe we're doing it out of guilt or greed or revenge or some other base motivation. So what do we do in regards to our planning if we know we have these blind spots in regards to our motivation? And I would suggest three things. The first one is that we ought to be honest with ourselves. Uh, You know that you often have mixed motives for doing what you do. So I attended this uh, real estate seminar when I was in my 20s. Uh, Just to give you an idea of how long ago that was, they actually threw out these cassette tapes to members of the audience. So those of you who are younger, ask your parents what a cassette tape is. But this was the kind of thing it was. It was this sort of motivational real estate seminar. You know, this is how you invest in real estate. This is how you make millions. And one of the very first things they did is they had everyone stand up and kind of shout out or declare, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is what we were supposed to do. Now, I had been invited by a friend from church. And so we talked about that seminar over lunch. And this whole idea of standing up and declaring, I'm going to be a millionaire. And he told me that his main motivation for becoming a millionaire was so that he could become independently wealthy and go on foreign missions. That's why he wanted to be a millionaire. Now listen, I have no doubt that he believed that. There's nothing wrong with being a millionaire or adjusting for inflation, a multi-millionaire. There's nothing wrong with being independently wealthy. But the motivation for most people to be rich is not so I can serve God better but so I can enjoy this lifestyle, all the things that wealth can bring. And we need to be honest with ourselves about that. What is our true motivation? Second thing we need to do is we need to find some trusted friends or advisors who will help us discern what our true motivation is. One of the Proverbs I read for you said, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Right, You put people around you who are actually going to tell you the truth or probe with those kind of questions. Why do you want to do this? You need people who will point out your blind spots. 
Now, I might have told you this before, but about seven or eight years ago now, I noticed this thing that was happening in our family dynamic, and it kind of caught me off guard a little bit. It took me a little while to figure out what was going on, and that was that in the summer months, uh, if we were headed to the beach or we were going going out as a family or anything like that, Ilona would say to me, like, Lee, do you have a hat? And at first I thought, well, I I guess she finds me really attractive in a baseball hat. So, you know, that's why she wants me to wear a hat. What I discovered, of course, is that I have this growing bald spot on the back of my head. And the reason she wants me to wear a hat is so that I don't get a sunburn back there. Now, I can't see it. I couldn't see. I can see it now. I couldn't see it so much at the time. So I have this blind spot and bald spot, right? And we all have those things. We've got these blind spots, things we don't know about ourselves that someone who is close to us does know. That's why you need to surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth. Third thing we need to do is we need to both read Scripture and allow it to read us. So the verse 2 again says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. See, God knows us even better than our family or our friends might know us or our spouse might know us. And we can fool others at times in regards to our motives. We might even fool ourselves, but we cannot fool God. God weighs our spirits. He knows our motivation. And how do we discover it? Well, one of the ways is through reading Scripture. The writer of Hebrews describes God's word like this. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, we don't just read Scripture. We allow it to read us, to actually penetrate, to pierce us and to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We allow it to be a mirror so it shows us the truth about ourselves. Now, the Bible's not going to tell us which car to buy, which career to take, which neighborhood to move into, but it will help us discern our motives in all things. Third thing, we learn about wisdom and planning here is that planning is a good thing, but it won't ultimately be successful apart from the Lord's blessing. So verse 3, it says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, the moment we hear that, we think, well, that's too good to be true. I mean, we can all think of exceptions to that. I know faithful church planters whose churches didn't last more than a few years. I know godly business people whose businesses didn't make it. They committed their work to the Lord, but their plans didn't come to fruition. They weren't established. And I would just say two things about that. The first is that we shouldn't read Proverbs as ironclad guarantees from God. Classic example of this is Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Does that mean that every child who's raised by godly parents and has a godly example from their parents will turn out and, and follow suit? Well, we all know there are exceptions to that. 
Now, parenting makes a difference. I mean, teaching your kids the Bible, praying with and for them, demonstrating what following Jesus looks like, all of those things matter, but they don't guarantee that your kids will follow Jesus. There are always exceptions to the rule. That's tied with the second thing I want to say about that, which is that we shouldn't start with the exceptions. We should start with the basic principle and deal with the exceptions to the rule afterwards. So the basic principle here, Proverbs 16.3 tells us, commit our plans to the Lord and the Lord will establish them. Verse 9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So planning in and of itself is not enough. I know I've shared lots of stories with you about the planting of this church before, but I learned something of great importance about committing my plans to the Lord in the midst of that process. Now, some of you who've been around here since day one, uh, you, you already know this, you've heard this before, but when we set out to plant this church, in some ways, we had no clue as to what we were doing. I mean, well, we had great plans, though. We wanted to plant a gospel-centered church in Surrey. And we basically took a a look at the map of Surrey, said, you know, what's the center of it? We determined the center was basically like Highway 10 and 152nd, which was great because there were these new, brand-new warehouses they had just built there. And we thought, man, that would be such a great place great space to plant a church. I mean, we could do really cool things with a warehouse space and people would come by the thousands, right? I mean, that was our plan. The only problem was that none of those warehouses were actually interested in renting their space to a church. And even if they were, we didn't actually have any money and we didn't know if we had any people So much of it at that point was just our plan. This is what we want to do. And we got about three months from launch date. We still had nowhere to meet as a church. We tried schools. We tried a few other venues. Everywhere we went, the answer was no. And we had been to look at the Clova before. We had come here once before to say, hey, could we do a church here? But there was nowhere to do kids ministry. And I think Andy's exact words after leaving this place were, I don't want to plant a church in Cloverdale, or there's no way I'm planting a church in Cloverdale. But on a whim one day, I actually drove here, I parked on the street, I walked up and down this street, and I prayed, and within 24 hours of that, we had secured both this space and the building across the street for our ministry. See, we plan... but we need to commit those plans to the Lord. And I think it actually came about because, because of that. Now, I'm not saying it always works like that. I'm not saying that, you know, you just make your plans, you pray, and it's going to happen according to plan. But I would say that sometimes what happens to us is we labor and labor without seeking the Lord's direction, and it goes nowhere unless the Lord builds the house. It's laborers labor in vain. So I would just say, rather than making prayer a last resort in our planning, it should be the first course of action. The very first thing we ought to do is commit our plans to the Lord and ask Him to establish them. Two more things to say about wisdom and planning. I'll go a little quicker with these truths, but number four, 
We might wonder why certain things happen, but the Lord has a purpose in all things. This is what we see in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, but be assured he will not go unpunished. Now, I'm not going to attempt to provide a theodicy or an exhaustive explanation of why there is so much evil in the world. But what the verse tells us is that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, the context of this passage, again, this chapter, is the interplay between God's sovereignty and our planning. And I would say there are lots of things that happen in the midst of our planning that are beyond our control. Some of those things are the result of the direct actions or the direct result of the actions of other people. And sometimes those actions are evil or unjust. That's what messes up our plans. So how do those things fit into God's sovereignty? Well, I think these verses actually help us understand that. Now, last week, if you were here, my friend Freddie came, shared a message from John chapter 11. And one of the things he talked about in that message was the doctrine of concurrence. In essence, concurrence says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without having the same intent. And he used the example of Joseph as one of the examples of how that concurrence works. You know the story. His brothers sold him into slavery with evil intent, but God sent him to Egypt with a different intent. There are actually several examples of that in the Bible. So Job's life is is a good example or good illustration of concurrence. In Job chapter 1, we read about three major players in Job's life and in his suffering. We read about Satan who instigated the suffering of Job by issuing a challenge to the Lord regarding Job's righteousness or piety. God allowed Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. And then if you read the chapter, Job 1, you'll find that the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans attacked Job's family and stole his livestock. All three contributed to Job's suffering. But the intent of each party was different in producing that same outcome. Satan's intention was to discredit Job and by extension really to discredit God. The intent of the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans was to enrich themselves, to take what Job had for themselves. God's intent was to validate or vindicate Job's faith. See, God brings everything, even those things that we think of as evil, to his desired end. And these verses bring the further reminder that human rebellious or human rebellion and wickedness will eventually be judged. Those things that we think of as evil, those actions we deem to be evil, God is not unaware of that. It's part of his plan to bring those things to judgment. He says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So even the things we think of as evil are fit into God's sovereign plan. Final thing we learn about wisdom and planning here is that even the seemingly random things are under the Lord's control. Now you have to jump all the way to the end of the chapter for this one. This chapter is really kind of bookended with these ideas. 
Verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the lot was this small stone that was often used in the decision-making process. You would kind of just toss it, and based on how it landed, that would be your decision. And you read about it lots of times. I mean, in the Old Testament, you read about it. It was used in the division of, of the land of Canaan to determine which tribe got which piece of land. It was used in the selection of Saul as the king of Israel, right? They cast lots. It was even used in the New Testament to find a replacement for Judas. Now, when we hear that, I mean, casting lots sounds like about the most random thing you could do to make a decision. The modern-day equivalent would be flipping a coin or rolling dice, right? If seven comes up, I'm going to marry that girl. Who would do that? Who would trust that? Now, I'm not suggesting that's what you ought to do when you make a decision, you're faced with a decision, go ahead and cast lots or go ahead and flip a coin. But I think this verse does teach us that there is really no such thing as random. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck or coincidence. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament is a good example or a great story about God's providence in all things, even the seemingly random things. Now, if you know that story, the story revolves around Ruth. She was a widow. She was a foreign widower who came to Israel without a penny to her name and no prospects for anything, not for marriage, not for work. And her mother-in-law tells her to see if she can pick up some work in one of the nearby fields. Here's what it says in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, there's a lot going on there that you can't see with just that one verse, but it says there she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The NIV translates that as, as it turned out, she came to this part of the field. The old King James Bible said, her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The literal Hebrew rendering of that verse would be something like, her chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. In contemporary terms, terms, we would say, well, as luck would have it, She ended up at the field belonging to Boaz. That is a strange way for the Bible to describe anything because the biblical worldview does not include things like chance or luck. So what is going on in Ruth chapter 2? Well, I think it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of moment in Scripture. When we read that, we are supposed to sit up and take notice. We're supposed to read it and say, oh, she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, did she? Just as luck would have it. Now, if you know the story, then you know that she goes on not only to work Boaz's field, but to marry Boaz. And what the book of Ruth teaches us is that God is sovereign or God is provident, providentially over all things. He arranges all things to make them come to their desired end, even those things that appear completely random to us. And the key to understanding the book of Ruth is not, well, sometimes you just have to roll with the punches. 
The key to understanding the book of Ruth is that the Lord looks after those who submit themselves to him and commit their plans to him. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And the way to function in this world when it comes to wisdom and planning, the most important thing we can do is to submit ourselves to the Lord who's in control of all things. So even as you have your plans for this summer or this next year or this next 10 years, I would just encourage you to submit yourself first to the Lord, put all of those plans before Him, and ask for His direction. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for these practical truths when it comes to our lives and how we plan them and how we go about uh, living them, the things that we desire, what's really in our hearts, and we know all of that is laid bare before you. Lord, all of our plans for the future are before you. They're in your hand, our health, our work, everything. And so, God, we submit ourselves first and foremost to you. We ask for your direction and your guidance in the midst of our planning. And more than anything, we just submit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.